It's quite simple, really. You just need to show you some film. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful episode. I'm Mitch. And I'm Stefan, and this is Drag Mitch to Hell, the show where I subject poor Mitch to genre movies that I love, but believe he will hate. This is our season three opener. And to mark this momentous occasion, we have a wonderful guest. Christina, would you please say hello? Hey, everybody. This is Christina. You are one of the hosts of the World of Horror podcast. Uh, I'm a huge fan, obviously. Uh, I would like to think that you're a friend of our podcast. If you would uh, allow us to designate you as such. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, would you care to give Neophytes, uh, the uninitiated, a little insight into the work you're doing with your podcast? Oh, yeah. So my son, Mac, and I do a podcast where we select a genre or subgenre of horror, and then we choose an international film and pair it with an American one. And it's a wonderful time. <laughs> I implore everybody <laughs> I to... So. <laughs> I implore everybody to go and check it out because I do think it's uh, it, they're always like interesting discussions, which I appreciate. Uh, so many podcasts are just like people goofing on movies. Uh, it's nice to have people you know just choose to explore them uh, with uh, uh, more intelligence. We'll say. <laughs> Thanks. I, I I think I know what you mean about the first type. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I I, I goof on movies too. Uh, you know, I'm not in glass houses here, um, but I also try to be somewhat smart although i'm like i'm admittedly pretty stupid uh i'm not fishing for compliments <laughs> i can uh, i can attest to that Stefan. you are an idiot 100 percent. yeah what was that that just came out of my mouth it was like a, a it was like a throat fart <laughs> i don't even know what that was i'm just embarrassing myself further speaking of embarrassment actually i'm not speaking about embarrassment i don't know why i was trying to segue with that to be completely honest <laughs> it's a good transition it's a great transition. Uh, it's nonsensical, the best kind of transition. But I do have a question for the both of you. Um, growing up, did your parents ever forbid you from watching something you're quite eager to watch? I can't think of a specific title, specifically movie-wise. I mean, growing up, they my parents definitely were, I don't want to say overly strict, but there were certain things when I was a younger kid. First, they didn't want me to watch The Simpsons. Um, which I was I grew up a big fan of. Um, eventually, I was allowed. But even like music videos at a time, they didn't want me watching because I think this was like '90s rap time when there was just a lot of you know bare ass on the screen, and my parents were like, "You don't need to be watching that." And I don't blame them for that. But I don't think anything specific, uh, movie wise, that I was like, "I really want to watch this movie," but my parents just won't let me. Uh, there were definitely, you know, restrictions and R-rated movies and things like that. But I don't, I can't remember a single title where, you know, I was super eager to watch it and I just couldn't. I'm sure one exists, but I'd have to go back into my memories. So in your case, censorship was dedicated more to the dumps like a truck esque music video, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, song song stuff. Exactly. Uh, that's a, a great. Uh, I'm glad that you said The Simpsons because I feel like there's like a bit of a like a societal moral panic about The Simpsons 
early on when it had come out because my parents also felt similarly about it. Uh, and I'll reveal what mine is later, but The Simpsons is one of them as well. Um, and then they eventually just realized that it's, it's a fine TV show. It's very, very funny. I, I think I started watching it in, in its like third season maybe. And then I just, you know, would watch reruns constantly. But uh, Christina, same question. I, re- I remember specifically they didn't want me watching Halloween. And I was fascinated by the poster and I really wanted to watch it, but um, I wasn't allowed to watch it. But other than that, I was, we were, we weren't supervised a whole lot. So I was traumatized pretty badly by Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. A truly yeah. haunting film. <laughs> yeah. 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 So their supervision was sort of inconsistent. <laughs> um, I think I might have appreciated not being allowed to watch that one because it really marked me for several years <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> So you have an interesting perspective because your son, you you parented your son. Uh, is there anything from the flip side that you didn't want uh, him to see at a certain age? Yeah, so I didn't. Is, is, <laughs> no, that, too that, much? Uh, no, I didn't want him to watch Saw. Okay. And um, he just looked up the kill scenes on YouTube. God bless the internet, guys. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have that uh, that option. I don't know if I've mentioned it on here, but I think we've talked about before, like basically the advent of getting the internet at home and the equivalent of YouTube was downloading sound bites from The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there'd be like a 10 second sound bite and play that and laugh and then, you know, go through the lesson, just have a folder of that. It's such it's so strange how far things have come in such a short period of time that he's like, Oh, you can just watch the whole movie on YouTube or the internet and it all exists. And I'd sit for an hour waiting for a 10 second clip of Homer saying some ridiculous <laughs> line. Yeah. I would say like the, my, in my youth, uh, the internet was largely downloading the game kill Barney on a floppy disc and playing that, which is just like, like a series of Barney's that you would destroy. And like, uh, God, what's, it's not Galaga or maybe it is Galaga. Uh, the game where you have like a central point at the bottom of the screen and you shoot missiles shoot at upwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, maybe that is uh, Galaga. Uh, it's like centipede. All I these games operate in like Galaga a very similar. Is the same, or is, is what yeah. Stuff. I believe so. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but anyways, uh, weird tangent. Uh, my, I have a specific film and I remember because I would largely go to the video store and, pick a movie based on its cover and i found the cover for dr giggles to be like enticing like it was like the the mecca of horror films for me as a know nothing child and my mom was like yeah i don't know my parents were very liberal despite also having a weird thing with the simpsons but again i think that was largely because of local news being like if you if your kids watch this they're gonna be like goblins and like (laughs) Kids don't need to watch The Simpsons to become goblins. They'll just be goblins. Um, but yes, that's it. That's it. That is the that is the cover. Uh, this is a uh, auditory experience. <laughs> Christina is holding up uh, an image of the Doctor Giggles poster. It just looks it looks good. Uh, yeah. It's it's it has an enticing cover. But my mom stalked up to the uh, you know, the, the sales desk, the front desk, and asked the clerk, like, hey, should he be able to see this? And the clerk's like, yeah, no. Uh, and then I never saw it. And then I only saw it, like, late in life. And I was like, this is a terrible movie. It's not good at all. <laughs> I had never heard of it until now. It was a very disappointing experience to finally see it because all of that, like, accrued uh, experience for me was just, like, fully lost. 
Anyways, the reason I'm bringing this up uh, is because we are starting our season three off with a extra special film for me. This is a modern film. This came out 2021. I, I don't have, the, I'm a, such a novice right now. I don't have the date up here. It is 2021. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people will, sh- will highlight older films, especially in horror. It's always like, you know, what are the old classics? And then they'll discuss them. I think it's important to like highlight something that's actually new. So today we're watching some provocative material with Prano Bailey Bond's censor. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, ain't it? I'm cutting it. Butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart, producer, Ident Investment Films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on his film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina. My sister. You know, if someone did take her, then there's still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. Someone's losing the plot. I was wondering if you had anything else on this actress. What's going to happen to her? That's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there. In all of us. I picked this movie for several reasons. Um, A, I love it because it deals with social hysterias. Speaking of The Simpsons, these, these are my jam. I love researching the satanic panic, for instance. Uh, anything that involves a group mentality is intensely interesting to me. Like what makes a group of people believe like a certain thing is uh, where I like to live. And oddly enough, I normally hate movies about movies, uh, but I find this is a unique angle to explore and makes me appreciate it more. I think generally it's movies about making movies that I find frustrating because I I feel like if I'm watching a movie, I want to see something that's uh, not pertaining to film. I want to see like a world that I'm not accustomed to and this definitely gives me that uh as we're looking at like a uk film board sensor now the reason i'm picking this for mitch is because while these are two uh movies that i'm going to suggest that are directed by women i'm not trying to say that they're the same film but there is a i I think some uh connective tissue that if you don't like one i don't think you're going to like the other um and when we started this podcast our first year we picked our favorite films saint Maud was on my list uh, and I do think there are similarities between that film and Censor. We have a very puritanical central character who's obsessed with, you know, uh, some central story element uh, in, in St. Maud as saving the soul of somebody. Uh, in the case of Censor, it's about finding the truth of what's happened to uh, the central character's lost sister. Additionally, there's some lost highway, David Lynch, you know, John Waters elements to this that... and. You're definitely, I don't, I, I think it's fair to say you're not a fan of David Lynch, and John Waters is also probably going to be. We've only done one film, but I think it's not going to be uh, uh, 
territory that you enjoy uh, being in, Mitch. So yeah, that is that's, that's, that's fair, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably. Okay, cool. All right. With all of that said, uh, Christina, why don't you tell us about your history with this film? Well, my son Mac and our good friend Quinn and I, as often as we can, we watch a movie together. And I think this was a squad pick. I don't remember who chose it. And um, we all just loved it. And we're like texting each other as we're watching it and stuff. Um, I liked the historical bent to it. And I loved her costuming. And then when it gets into like, are her thoughts really what's happening? I like that kind of thing anyway. And it ended up being one of my favorite movies of the year too. Awesome. I love unreliable narrators in general. Uh, it, it's it's great stuff for me. Um, yeah, I, I like whenever you're on shaky terrain. So uh, I had mentioned in a segment that we're going to for sure cut out that we're adding a, a new little segment here uh, where you're going to guess whether or not this successfully drags Mitch to hell. Uh, <laughs> I'm throwing you to the wolves here. Uh, are, we, are we going yes or are we going no here? I think no. I mean, I think yes. You think I he's going yes. to go to hell? Yeah. Yes, I think so. All right, cool. All right, Mitch. Uh, Stefan, what, are, are you guessing or are you not guessing? Well, I mean, I picked this movie with the... the I guess the, you assume that... Uh, every movie yeah, yeah. I pick, I'm that hoping you're going to hate your time watching it. That's <laughs> and I, I was the one calling you an idiot. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's implicit in... It's, well, actually, no, sorry. It's explicit because we start the podcast saying I'm picking movies that I think you're going to hate. Then we watch them true, and determine true, whether yeah. or not uh, what's successful. So I guess the point is, yes, you were both stupid. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> So, uh, in, in, initial thoughts here, Mitch. What what do we or is is Christina correct? Um, well, first, I want to start by saying I was a little bit concerned when you said, "Oh, both movies directed by women." I thought you were going to go on a, a path there to be like, "I think Mitch just doesn't like movies that are uh, female directed." So, Sorry. thank you for not doing that. <laughs> I, I don't think I was even clear about that. Uh, I don't want to like collapse two movies that were directed by women and say like they're the same film because i think that's entirely disrespectful that that's that's why i brought that up i'm not to say that you hate women <laughs> I'm glad why do you hate women directors up. mitch um, <laughs> as far as the movie itself goes um christina i am sad to say that you oh. are slightly you're wrong i mean it's 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 tough for me this is we, we've talked about three star reviews this is a three-star movie for me Stefan, and we can God talk about it, why it's, i think there's a lot to appreciate in this movie i don't love the movie by any means but i do think there's enough good in here to to recommend it so i was okay. not dragged to hell no but i think right, audience uh, we're starting off season three with an absolute <laughs> failure here <laughs> But I do think you're onto some things in your selection of this movie, and I can see why you picked it. Okay, uh, so good. I'm, I am excited to talk about it. Uh, yeah, as I said in our, our, our at the tail end of season two, is I feel like I threw a few softballs at you last season, and the goal is entirely to uh, evacuate that and just go super hard. Uh, so it's a bit disappointing for me to 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 know that this is something that you moderately enjoyed question mark yeah it's a, a slight slightly enjoyed there were things i liked about it some things that were you know it was hit and miss for me a little uneven 
Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we get into the plot of this film and see what works for you and what doesn't in order to better pick uh, movies in the future. How's that sound? Sounds great. Awesome. So in a bloodlit forest, we're introduced to a frightened woman who runs from ethereal growls only to fall and be dragged deeper into the forest by some unseen monster. It's then revealed that our central character Enid, played by Neve Algar, uh, is viewing this horror movie in what appears to be the depths of some brutalist building, acting as a British film censor. These opening moments that uh, Enid's watching are actually from uh, the director Prano Bailey Bond's short film Nasty, which preceded this. Uh, it's stylistically and thematically related to this film. Uh, as the title implies, it deals with uh, video nasties. Um, it also ends with the song Leprosy by the band Death, who I love, so definite points for that. But that brings us to uh, an important question. Uh, Enid's job surrounds uh, a certain moral panic, much like The Simpsons, uh, but this is in the 80s in the UK. Uh, what is your familiarity with uh, the video nasties? I, you, I'm sure you're aware, but uh, I'm aware now, <laughs> but I wasn't aware at the time. I was uh, keenly aware of the controversy in the U.S. over Ozzy Osbourne after a teenager killed himself, and he he was listening to Ozzy Osbourne when he did it. So I was aware of that, but um, I've since like read up on it, and I find it just fascinating. And the montage that they have in the movie, I think, you know, fills those of us who weren't, you know, privy to this, fills us in in a very quick way. Yeah, I love that opening montage. I'm, I'm going to get to it soon. But uh, Mitch, were you aware of the like the UK's video nasties list? Uh, I was not aware. So my only familiarity with it was actually when you mentioned censor on our podcast previously when you were talking about i don't know if it was on the best of or if it was on just the episode like the little hell that we were talking about what we watched but you mentioned the sort of video nasties uh, and that's really my only familiarity with it i after having watched the movie did a little bit of research and reading on it and it's pretty fascinating uh, but yeah prior to seeing this movie I had very little knowledge of what video nasties were or the sort of cultural panic surrounding. Yeah. So uh, if anybody is unaware, the video nasties is essentially a banned list of films that includes uh, like driller killer, for example, Abel Ferreira's movie um, that, and they were banned to the extent that if a video store tried to uh, peddle these uh, provocative wares, they could uh, be closed and, you know, the, the owner could face jail time, for instance, like it was a, it was a pretty strict uh, regulatory system based around some weird, you know, Margaret Thatcher era politics. It, it, it is so intensely interesting. Uh, I can't wait to talk about it more. But uh, anyways, Enid, our censor, is sat alongside her co-worker Sanderson, played wonderfully by Nicholas Burns. Uh, it's clear from Enid's fine analysis, which I'd call minutia censorship, that she cares greatly for her work and fears the societal impact of missed censorship. She offers the lines, I just want to get it right and we can't afford mistakes, which I think is some great dialogue that sets up uh, her character as well as the world it exists in. Uh, unfortunately, Doug couldn't care less. Uh, maybe that's <laughs> unfair, but he's definitely more lax. Uh, I think we could all agree on that. Yes. Uh, and then from this moment, we go to the... Uh, the uh, the montage that you mentioned earlier, where we see 
uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, level press bits outlining the importance of the censorship while we're inundated with a wave of both real video nasties, such as like, as I said, driller killer uh, and fake. Again, some bits are from uh, uh, the director's short film nasty. And I think there are other uh, fake segments that she might've filmed for this, but I'm not entirely sure. I can't remember, but it really communicates all of the pertinent information that you need without, you know, ridiculous exposition which as a viewer i truly appreciate i have a note here and my memory is so terrible and i just watched so much that i wrote down how much i liked the opening credits and score and how that was done but i just wanted to make sure it's like i'm pretty certain that it was this montage uh with the the score edited to the credits but yeah really good stuff uh, yeah the score really is, is puts you into it. um like i said gives you the knowledge that you need without exposition or having to you know explain to the audience what exactly this is i'm a i'm a fan good editing uh all around it, also the writing in this i think is wonderful the dialogue is always uh enticing for me as like a viewer um and i'm gonna touch on like a few moments in this film that i don't like it, it, all, there were apparently some a few like reshoots as well to add some additional clarity and i think there's one scene in particular that when we get to it i'll, I'll mention but its addition is is perfect uh I, to the point where like i couldn't imagine the movie without it anyways over a round table of censorship uh enid defends her puritanical cuts on the film cannibal carnage to the rest of her colleagues uh, i love that she later agrees to type up her uh, co-worker ann's notes uh, Anne is played by claire perkins i think neve's acting coupled with the script perfectly underlined the character here uh she is both ready to sacrifice her time in service of censorship but still seems resentful at the same time as if she finds the initial question suggestive of the fact that she has no life outside of uh like this parlor i could just stay up late just my reading the i don't know if did you guys feel that way in that interaction or am i just fully off base here i thought so because she mentioned um she mentioned just, I, I can't remember the character's name, but her coworker was a little hungover, I think. And then she she throws that back at her. Well, I'm not hungover, so it's no problem for me to do this. <laughs> it's, it, uh, it's so good. Uh, Mitch, I, I think at this point, like we have a good sense of the char- like the central character. I, like if, if this movie does anything really successfully, it's establishing who Enid is from, from, the, from the get. Like we know who this character oh, yeah. is. 100%. Um, and I, I know we like to to enjoy a character they don't have to be like us obviously in in film do, do you, is this a character that you enjoy so this is a, a good question because i do think uh this is where the parallel between saint Maud uh does exist a little bit in this puritanical character um it's it's tough for me to get to get inside a character like this and like you said you don't have to be like them um but for me this type of character is is tough as to crack for me to try and you know relate uh, in any kind of way or or understand them so yeah, i don't want to go as far as to say like oh i really like a character like this um i don't automatically dismiss it or you know don't like it but it, it definitely makes it more difficult for me to to get on board with them. And again, not necessarily because or whether or not they're likable, just because the mindset, it seems to be, I don't want to say like very focused, like you said, minutia and sort of zoomed in on one thing, which doesn't allow a lot of other aspects of 
of her life to to shine through to give me sort of a full view of what else is going on like again you understand what type of a character she is um but at this point it's tough because there's not a ton of depth there for me to hang on to other things if you understand what i'm saying yeah of course that's why that's why i picked this movie i really felt like you would just not enjoy this character so i think that like you know you just confirming that i'm not an idiot anymore <laughs> stop being stupid <laughs> um christina you'd mentioned uh costume and wardrobing her like librarian glasses and like the almost like she's like a like a baptist minister or something <laughs> like it's just like so or uh that's maybe a bad uh maybe like a, a school teacher almost yeah, like it, it's a very very buttoned up and conservative I, and that's one of the things i think that the movie does really well is this is obviously a like a period piece and it it, it feels very much like I, I was born in 88 so i don't have a ton of recollection of what the 80s were actually like um but it, it feels like it's legitimately taking place in that time period and it's not shoving the 80s in your face um in the same way that sort of some nostalgic things now like a stranger yeah. things or something would yeah um, but it just feels very real and and lived in and it's a little bit surprising because this is her first uh, first feature um it just seems very assured um the direction of the movie the costumes the performances there's a lot of good stuff here uh, and i think it's worth noting yeah i I definitely agree it's like it's a very confident first film uh christina do you do you do you enjoy enid as a character to watch do you find like any kind of humor in her like she she accords herself in such an interesting fashion uh yeah i was interested in her i'm like what's this chick's deal you know i i don't (laughs) why does she care so much and she's like so particular about like she cut out you know i don't know 10 seconds of this and um so precise and like you said the contrast with her coworker, where he's just like you know we can let this slide this isn't that important <laughs> um, but there's one scene talking about the costuming where her blouse is the same color as like the files that she's yeah. looking at. And so I just love that. I thought it was brilliant because she's just like such a part of this world. And I I would say it's very early 80s. Yes. Because, you know, later on we were into the neon and all that kind right. of thing. But but still this is kind of closer to the 70s, I think in terms of a color palette. Um, but I just think it all works really well. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the the color matching because the, I, I watched a few interviews with the director just so I had something interesting to say because it's not coming from me, obviously. Uh, but she was saying that she had dressed uh, the talent in colors that would match or blend in with the background. And only that starts to conflict uh towards the tail end of the film where the character is exiting we'll say exiting reality uh mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that but uh, i'm glad you brought that up it's a very good point uh and I, I it's it just shows the like the level of effort that went into making this film which goes a long way in making you appreciate it a little bit more but Getting back to the film. Later, Enid meets with her parents for dinner, uh, an outing she's clearly not a fan of. It, it all looks quite strained. And again, the color pal- palette of the the room with the clothes all kind of just match. It's all like uh-huh. muted. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the coloring is. It's, it's like a very beigey room. 
Yeah. Uh, but it, it, they, they look like they could all just like sit against the wall and just fully disappear. And I probably should not move away from the mic while I'm talking. <laughs> anyway, isn't there like some flowers right by the dad's face? Like yeah. there's just like a splash, like yeah. right by his face. <laughs> Oh man, it's this. So this scene starts off wonderfully. Um, Ina's looking over. By the way, she sat across from her parents. I don't know if I had said that already, but they also look equally uncomfortable. This this seems like a strange encounter, uh, and I'll I'll say that for now. Uh, Ina's looking over what you know we as a viewer might assume is a menu, and then states, "This is a death certificate," which is fucking genius <laughs> writing, guys. Because it turns out she is, in fact, holding a death certificate, and it's a reveal that the parents are showing uh, her a death certificate death certificate for her sister who's gone missing when they were children, and they're just essentially trying to move on. But, you know, it's just great. I love it. Uh, I, this is a scene that I'd mentioned is a, uh, a reshoot edition. Um, uh, watching the commentary for this film was the, the revelation. And, I like, this scene is like perfect it's it's it, it communicates you can kind of understand how this event the the loss of her sister without any clarity as to what has happened to her has helped foster the enid we see in this film uh and also just the interaction with her parents we can understand that she's become somebody that uh they might not want to know anymore almost or like their role as a parent is almost perfunctory to a certain degree. Uh, they're like, they're so ready to move on as soon as they serve the death certificate, they start a discussion of like, like I hear the fish is good, good here or something to that effect. <laughs> and like how Enid's work's been seen anything good lately. And then she offers, it's not entertainment. I do it to protect people. Like, <laughs> Look, Mitch, of all the scenes, I, I feel like this is one that you probably enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm surprised to hear that it was, I don't want to say an afterthought, but like a, a reshoot edition because it is. it seems like it's essential to, to the movie and understanding their relationship. And it adds so much that I am surprised. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good scene and does a great job of balancing um, you know, the, the seriousness of what Enid is is going through but also that little bit of humor that comes from going immediately from discussing like here's the death certificate we need to move on with our lives to oh here the fish is good uh yeah. so it's it's yeah really good balancing act and, and a really great scene yeah I, it, it's almost so crucial to the plot that me saying that it's a reshoot based on the commentary that i've listened to makes me question whether i've like misattributed like that to this scene do you know what i mean like yeah. It, it, yeah, it feels like to not have it in is bananas. Um, Christina, did did you, is this a scene for you? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really pivotal because it establishes the relationship and the disconnect between her parents and her. And there's a little bit from her mom. I don't remember the exact line, but it's something like, you were never able to tell us exactly what happened. Yes, that's a very important thing too. So Enid remembers nothing from her mo final moments with her sister, as if like this parcel of memory terrain has been excavated uh, like a long time ago. And hold on to that, dear listener, because uh, it's going to become increasingly important. And I think what it does with uh, like the memory gaps that we might possess as people uh, and what we choose to fill it with is like a very interesting discussion. 
Uh, and I think that's what really draws me to this film. Yeah, anyways, getting back to the film. Uh, that evening, Enid tries to scrape the deep recesses of her memory, and we see a flash of her sister Nina smiling and looking back as she runs through the forest. We then cut uh, to Enid on the subway, uh, where she spots another commuter's newspaper, which attributes their rise in crime to the video nasties. Uh, I, I have to say, so scenes like this, for me, can be quite annoying in movies. It feels like the director's trying to, like, shake you that's like this is the era it exists in you dumb idiot like like uh trying to like really establish the historical context because really it's already been established yeah. uh but here what's interesting is it affects enid and her lips curl into like a pursed smile which i love because it feels like it reaffirms her job and her role she's like i i have purpose i have, <laughs> I have meaning <laughs> I, I i think it's it has to protect the people you got to protect the people. These violent horror movies uh, are really going to just destroy the youth. Anyways, uh, later uh, we see Enid sat next to fellow censor Anne. Uh, this is the person she did the the, the notes for earlier. Uh, and they're watching a movie called Extreme Coda, uh, where a woman is being sexually assaulted in what looks like kind of a stagey office setting. Uh, this will be semi-important for later on. Uh, Enid's then called in to meet her boss, Frazier, along with the lackadaisical Doug. Uh, it turns out there's been a murder. A man's murdered his wife, eaten her face, and dispatched their two children. Uh, and he's being dubbed the amnesiac killer uh, as he claims to not remember the events. Uh, a particular video nasty entitled Deranged is being blamed for the crime, which contains a scene of someone eating another's face. Unfortunately, Enid and Doug were the two who passed the film. A fact that journalists know about, sadly. Uh, Frazier is nonplussed. If you have doubts, don't pass it, he offers. This, I think this is a, like, a great sequence of events here. We have a puritanical Enid really taking care in what she's doing. And then we have the media latching onto a, uh, you know, uh, it's not a mass murder. Like, what, what would you call that? I don't even know what you call that. Anyways, um, and it calls into question their efficacy, which as censors, which seems to only like spur her on. It's just, you know, great story work. I enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's nice because it it challenges Enid's notion of herself. Like she's so like, uh, I don't want to say stubborn, but like, you know, wants things a certain way and and usually gets them like we see in this earlier scene where people are humming and hawing and she's just like i'm cutting it uh <laughs> it has to be this way and i'm here to protect the people right. and then this comes up and it's it's almost as if she's failed her duty to protect the people so it's an interesting swing in the in the plot here yeah but i thought it was like this is where the movie starts to give us as the audience a suggestion that her sanity might be a little bit in question because she doesn't remember what happened to her right. sister. Here we have that right. amnesiac killer. But it's just that we're, we, up to this point, I think we had one story and now it starts to like divide. Um, yes, and certainly. so I, I think it was just really great because it's just sort of like layered, um, you know, like I don't know how, what scene we're on at this point, but it's still very early. This yeah. is very, very early on too, yeah. Uh, and the movie's definitely like sp spreading its tendrils out. 
we have uh, Enid, uh, who, like, I think the first time that I watched this, I was like, oh, she totally killed her sister, was, like, what was in my head. And that was the movie that I thought was going, I was going to get. And, you know, slight spoiler, that's not the movie we get. Um, But it's just, it's so interesting. Uh, And then, obviously, we have this, you know, this killer who's, uh, murders being misattributed to the censors. It's just, it's just a, a very interesting, you know, this is the, I think this, I would qualify this as the end of the first act. This is our inciting incident to bring us into the film. Actually, yeah. no, sorry. The next scene is probably that, but, uh, um, you know, uh, that evening, Enid starts to receive calls, like crank calls. You should be ashamed of yourself. And the following day doesn't get much better as the news headline reads, censor to blame, uh, and, you know, we find outside of her office, a throng of journalists uh, harangue her on her way inside, uh, where she's then greeted by Doug Smart, uh, played by Michael Smiley, uh, who is most known to me for his roles in Kill List and The Lobster. But, you know, talented person. I, 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 I think he does a great job in this film of being a certified creep. Yeah. <laughs> so Doug's a producer of some of the video nasties that Enid has been watching uh, a fact that clearly bothers her when she finds out uh, their conversation is terse that's probably an understatement uh, him offering her an on-screen role her passing on you know quote unquote being raped and murdered on film and him implying but the public would love to see that like, <laughs> it's a fucking great scene and great exchange um, which ends with uh, her boss Frazier Enid's boss, Frazier, informing Doug that Enid will be the uh, the censor watching his latest Frederick North film, Don't Go Into the Church. Or Don't Go In the Church. Um, it's Don't Go In the Church, I believe, not Don't Go Into the Church. Anyways, the point is, it's a great title for a movie, even if I bungled it, you know. Uh, all of this is wonderful. Is it believable that the public would know that she and the other guy were the actual censors? So in my mind, because this exists in a fully bureaucratic, you know, like Kafka-esque, you know, setting, like they would log the film. And then if somebody got access to that and then fed it to the press, like for me, it is conceivable that they could be revealed as these censors for the film. But also uh, at this point is Enid already, as it suggested later on, losing the plot. Uh, <laughs> with, with, you know, is she already is, is she already fraying? Is her crank call are her crank calls real? Um, that's that could be a point of contention. Uh, are, are there crowds outside the censor's office? Actually, you know, like at this point, like I, I would, I, I, I feel like you could be reasonable to question everything. I guess does that make sense? Yeah, and also Doug's. I don't know, saying that she's just absolutely gorgeous and she's like <laughs> a wee cracker. And, you know, I, I think this could be all a construction that she's made up, you know, yeah. and she's she's really uh, creating the story, as they call yeah. it later. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, uh, he, he offers her some awful words later on that we'll get to um, that I found, like, personally, like, just like... R- r- reviling like they're just ugh, makes me feel gross like i need to have a shower um uh, anyways uh enid settles into one of the uh viewing booths alongside uh one of her colleagues and i believe this is the first introduction of perkins who's played by danny lee winter uh and it's clear from a you know 
I would say, held too long smile uh, that he might have a thing for Enid. Um, as the film starts up, it appears to bear a striking similarity to Enid's own past as we see two girls alone deep in the forest, one daring the other to go up to a ramshackled cabin. These visuals affect Enid so deeply she shakily removes her librarian glasses and the violence of the film infects the projector's beam, turning it red. And these events drive Enid to the washroom where she vomits. I, I love the vi- like the the visual of like rather than seeing another like act of violence uh, projected onto the screen, we just need to see the fact that it's occurring and choosing to see red wash over the projector beam. I think is a successful <laughs> visual mechanism. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> cool. So this this is we we've talked about. I would say two tendrils. This is like the third tendril of the film that kind of like, you know, brings it all together a little bit uh, and kind of shows you where this movie is going. I love a mystery. So this this to me is like success. Um, Mitch. Yeah. So this is where I'd qualify the end of the first act of the film. Like, how are you feel? Like, what are your thoughts on this? So I actually really like this scene and where it takes us in the movie. I like you. I'm a, a mystery fan. I like not knowing and trying to put the pieces together. Um, and I just thought it was really effective as well. We've seen the imagery of sort of the, what she sort of half remembers of her and her sister and, you know, in the woods and things like that. So we immediately make the connection as well that this is reminiscent of that day uh, of what's happened to her and her sister, which we still don't know. Um, so it adds that, like you said, it adds that mystery to it. Is there something more sinister going on here? And and you mentioned the red being projected, which is just another example of the the assured or confident direction, which is I don't need to show you. Um, you you get it totally by just this other, you know, by just seeing the red wash over. I think it's a really good scene and and definitely propels you right into what happens next. So yeah, I was a big fan. Nice. So uh, I obviously I have again no intelligent opinions. Uh, so I watched some interviews with the director. <laughs> <laughs> she said something interesting um if society agrees these movies are harmful to the public who protects the censor uh like they're essentially the canary in the coal mine and the fate of the canary if things are bad ain't so hot guys yeah. right so the placebo effect is a great one if you believe material to be harmful it's likely to affect you at least some level and create perceived physiological effects on yourself um and the example that she gives is um so uh, for, for censorship, uh, Hammer era horror films, uh, it was viewed that blood on the breast uh, was cut immediately since it was deemed to cause like rapes, for instance. Like, yeah, like that's, okay. that's, that's, <laughs> that is equivocation, right? Like, 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 wow, that, that's that's it's uh, quite the leap, right? Yeah. Um, but but it, but it is interesting, like if somebody so fervently believes these movies are damaging and people are forced to watch this to determine whether it's damaging that the implication is that it is damaging to them, uh, which, which is, you know, that's a great conceit for a film. And again, just goes into like the assured direction uh, that that sensor has maybe elevating it past three stars, Mitch, come on, bro. (laughs) (laughs) How many? Out of, out of five. So on Letterboxd, it's it's five stars. Right. Okay. <laughs> out of ten stars, like a thirty percent movie. No, I figured it was out of five, but I yeah. just wanted to check. No, of course, of course, of course. Um, 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we have uh, Enid spewing at this point. Uh, Perkins then tries his best to make her feel better, saying it shook him up as well. Uh, Enid steers the conversation to the amnesiac killer, asking why it is he can't remember the murder. You know, I think she says her exact line is, why wouldn't he remember? Uh, Perkins offers, could be trauma. The brain tries to shut it out. Uh, it's clear Enid is grappling with her own past. Uh, you know, are, were there some awful implications? Was she, was she involved in her sister's dis- like full disappearance? Like, did, he, did she potentially murder him? Uh, this is so representative of her past. In, in the first moments of the film that she's choosing to use what happens in the film as the rest of her memory, essentially. What I find funny here is uh, Perkins at this point decides that it's a great time to ask her out for a drink. <laughs> like swing and a miss, man. Uh, read the like, room, Perkins. Read the room. She's like, was almost crying. She vomited. It's also such like a faux nice guy move. Uh, <laughs> how you doing? Uh, I see you're uh, in a bad spot. You want to go out now? Like it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rough. Anyways, uh, that evening, Enid is walking through some uh, labyrinthian pedestrian tunnels uh, and hears some whimpers coming from a darkened stretch ahead. She then descends into the darkness of the tunnel, black enveloping her. Uh, on I, This is really inconsequential. The only reason I'm bringing it up is because the director says this is a visual homage to Lost Highway, which will uh, be another oh. film on this season, Mitch. So, <laughs> oh, buckle up for that one, Mitch. Yes. <laughs> uh also i just love tracking shots like i could watch like people walk on film for the entirety of the movie i think guys uh, i don't know do you find this similar, similarly affecting yeah like an aaron sorkin walk and talk <laughs> i mean like in general there's something about like uh, i i find it coming like sometimes i'll watch videos of people walking through like you know like like here's a tokyo walking video and i'll just watch it and be like this is nice uh i guess i'm alone in that right no i i've I've watched those too because it's like you're there you know and it's really that's a pretty cool thing that people are are putting those out there so you get you know a little more of a taste of the place yeah mitch uh i feel like you probably think i'm an idiot well i mean that's a given but uh (laughs) (laughs) i didn't no i don't have any feelings about uh walking i didn't even know this was a thing yeah, the, he's just like walking in different places. Yeah. Well, I, it's it's not surprising, I would say, because like there's like uh, my partner's father loves watching like biking videos, so I'll just watch people bike. Um, because he is like an avid biker himself. Um, you know, uh, it's, I don't find it like a wild swing that there's walking videos. So don't make me feel. No, bad I don't think. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just didn't know it existed. It's not something that's come up in my life. Maybe if I was an avid walker, uh, I would, you know, be watching these walking videos. You know what? You should send me some of these uh, when we're done here and I can check them out. And maybe it'll be my new favorite uh, thing to watch on YouTube. Or I'll just even more stuff. I I feel like you're just judging me. The only (laughs) thing about that is judgy. You got a judgy tone, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, I love like this is calling back to like the design of this this office as well. I love brutalist architecture. I I find it like just, there's something about it that uh, is both like haunting and alluring to me. Urban decay is like another thing as well. And this, this movie seems to be like both of those things uh, at different times, uh, which 
you know, I, I find nice to look at, which I appreciate. Also, uh, she was saying that the uh, the director was saying that the idea for the censor's office was to create like the it was it's watership down. It's it, it's attention. It's intended to be a like uh, a rabbit warren almost of just like you know, weird tunnels leading to different spaces with a bunch of, you know, sensors inside of it doing their thing, uh, which I think is a, a good way to describe a lot of the, uh, the spaces that this movie chooses to explore. Anyways, I'm done talking about walking videos and rabbit warrants. <laughs> um, that evening in a dream state, Enid comes downstairs drawn to a television spitting static. Her mind drifts to the Frederick North film, uh, Don't Go in the Church, where the actor calls uh, into the cabin, Nina. The sounds of Enid's mother crying draw her into another room. Uh, she finds her mother, her back towards us. Uh, she quickly spins and spews absolute vitriol, hollering, it's all your fault. This is, I think, one of, like, an, an actual scary moment for me in the movie that I think works really well. Um, because it chooses to use horror to explore Enid's feelings of resentment uh, that her parents might have towards her. You know, they probably have many chips on their shoulder, uh, uh, you know, thinking that maybe she bears some responsibility for her sister's death, which is going to be hit on much uh, pretty soon in the movie as well. And like in an average horror movie, it's just like a scare to get a scare. But this movie takes the extra effort to inject the additional weight of her biographical trauma into the scare which I find really cool. Am I alone in thinking that this was like a creepy moment in the movie? No, you're not alone there. Uh, the woman had her back to us for too long. So you knew that something was going to happen. And there's also a musical sting when she shouts. So, I mean, it does give us a, a jump scare, but yeah. that is scary. I mean, to think of your parent hating you or, you know, thinking yeah. that you're to blame. So uh, I think it makes all kinds of sense, even if it's just in Enid's mind. Yeah. So, Mitch, you haven't really said anything negative thus far about the film, uh, which leads me to believe, again, higher than three stars. But how did this work for you? <laughs> um, it worked fine. It's nice to have a sort of scare moment that, like you said, actually gives insight into a character's psyche versus uh, like you know, just for the sake of making the audience jump. Or you yeah. know, it's been too long since we've had a scare, and I, I think this movie doesn't isn't concerned with scaring you with the sort of usual tactics. Like this isn't a movie where it's like, oh, we got to have the jump scares and we got to have right. a, a monster or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's not nearly as interested in those things, which I appreciate about it. Um, so yeah, I think it it's a scene that that works. Like you said, you sort of see things uh, coming with the mom having her back to her for quite some time it's like okay like what's she gonna be doing is her face gonna be all messed up or what's gonna happen uh and it's like no she's just you're you're to blame for your yeah. disappearance or death uh so no i think it's a good scene i think that um you're right i haven't said anything overly negative about the movie thus far i do think that the movie for me anyway uh in the sort of last third of it is where I kind of started feeling like, oh, yeah, okay, like we're it wasn't doing a whole lot for me. Um, and like I said, there's a, there's a lot to appreciate about the movie. None of it. Um, I'm not sure what that was. That was a motorcycle going by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's good? Mitch, you have some song in your place? That's right. I'm just practicing my sound effects. Um, <laughs> 
yeah so i do like they said up to this point there's a lot to appreciate in the movie uh but nothing where you know it's it's still not i'm not loving my time like super excited about what's going on but i am interested in, in enjoying it so far uh, but i again the last third or you know 20 minutes of the movie is where i sort of kind of became disinterested um but we'll we'll obviously get there yeah i mean i picked this movie because i thought the like back half would be like absolute nails on the chalkboard for you <laughs> it's, it's good to know me at least on the right track a little bit but yeah. uh i think it's a good choice uh on your end here Stephanie. even if it didn't quite drag me to hell though in the way you wanted thank you <laughs> <laughs> Take the compliments, Fine. <laughs> Through grit teeth. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, now possessed by this Frederick North film, uh, Enid tries to visit the censor board archives, but in true bureaucratic fashion, it'll take a week to dig up these movies without knowing their titles, uh, which I, I found in- intensely enjoyable. Anything about the silliness of people doing the most mundane tasks taking years, uh, I always find enjoyable. Uh, so this, this, this is working for me. Uh, Enid tries uh, another tack uh, and decides to go to a video store. Uh, and this is, I think, a, like, you know, I said earlier, video stores where there's like a heavy crackdown on them. So I think this is an interesting way to explore that historical element to this artificial moral panic. But uh, she goes to the video store uh, and, you know, she she sees uh, the clerk has like is like getting uh a return for a film that she knows to be banned uh, and then decides to kind of like stock up to the clerk and, you know, try to cajole him into giving her a, uh, one of Frederick North's banned films. Uh, and I love her reciting her sensor notes to the clerk to gain his trust, repeated eye stabbing with a compass. Like it's, it's so <laughs> funny. It's, it's great. Uh, but Enid does manage to get this video store clerk to hand over a film, and that is Asunder. Watching the film, Enid becomes obsessed with the act, the central actor, uh, Alice Lee. Could this be her long lost sister? I guess we'll find out. Like it could be. Could be. Who knows? Enid visits her parents and confesses she believes Alice Lee to be her long lost sister. Uh, her parents reasonably are having none of this discussion whatsoever. Again, they've issued the death certificate. They're like moving past this. Uh, they claim you always go off and do whatever you want. Like the day you ran off with her again, this is the, the, the film's first explicit. I think it's the first film, uh, the first explicit moment of the parents blaming her, which again, I, I think shows maybe like gives a hint at like the historical context of uh enid with her parents uh that i find very very enjoyable and it's you know at this point it's continuing to be obvious that her parents bear some kind of resentment towards her anyways that evening enid has a dream where uh we're in a neon drenched forest and she sees the scene from don't go in the church but the young girl is replaced by alice lee uh, in interviews uh Prano bailey bond alludes to certain memories and then we talked about this earlier uh where you possess some details but the but large sections have been you know excised they're like fully removed and you fill those sections with experiences that you know seem to make sense together uh in this case she's seen a movie two girls in a in the woods uh it seems to reflect her past and then she fills the you know the the vacant section of memory with 
this film and we're gonna get weird now do you guys have any murky memories you'd care to share oh. murky memories it, it doesn't have to be like anything like like um uh like hot hot and juicy it could just be like you know i i, I have this odd memory from I'll, I'll start with mine and give you time to think about it and mine isn't even a good one i have an odd memory of a uh, a white wall with a radiator in it wood floor uh and a bright window as if like the sun is coming down and this memory is so vivid for me and like i must have been like four or five like right at the moment where like memories start to like actually imprint on you uh and i don't remember anything else about it but i remember this like vivid vision yeah that's mine it's bad it's not a good example but do you guys have equally have something silly that you you remember but you don't understand uh like the full picture or you know you don't have to say anything if you don't want to uh no i think i'll shame you though uh, (laughs) i'm happy to discuss it i feel like i have a weird relationship with memory in general because i feel like i have a worse memory than most people do in that people discuss you know, oh, the first time I went to the movies and I was five and I saw this movie and this was my experience, I have no idea what the first movie I watched was in a theater. Um, it just, and I love movies. Movies have been a huge part of my life since I was a child. Um, but like, I don't remember sort of things that you would think would be uh, like primary or like keystones of in my life. And that's just like, oh, I don't remember. Like as a young child, I have very few memories and there are things that i feel like and i think everyone has this experience but is i don't know if i've created them or if they actually happened like i have a memory of being very young and being at my uncle's place and like throwing balls of paper with his cat that he just got but i don't know if i've created that memory because i know that that happened like through talking with my family and things like that or if i actually remember it and so I'm always thinking about how I think I have a poor memory uh, for certain things and how I want to start like like a diary and just like journaling so that I can go back and remember everything because I'm scared that in 20 years, I'm going to look back and be like, oh, well, I don't really remember these moments in my life that I feel like I should. Right. Uh, so hopefully that answers your question. I don't have like the the murky sort of like image or something like that, but yeah, yeah it's an odd relationship with with memory. Yeah. Christina. I feel like I have memories that are incomplete. And the one that just popped out to me was uh, there was a very high hill in my hometown and I took my bike and I walked up this very, very high hill and some, and then I crashed and somebody got me home. And I had this um, matching like t-shirt and jeans set and I had skinned the knee on the jeans. So I remember that part, but I have no idea about all the logistics. I don't yeah. know if my mom was home when this person got me back home and things like that. So I have I have some of those. And I was thinking about memory and my brother is somebody who, you know, doesn't remember hardly anything from his childhood. And we'll show him photographs. And he's like, yeah, I have no memory of this. And it's very kind of like Blade Runner-y almost, you know, it's yeah. like... He's, he's like, I see it. I see I'm in these pictures, but no memory of it. That's interesting. Uh, also, uh, 
to go back to what you had said, Mitch, I don't think I remember my first movie either. I, I remember one of the earliest movies that I saw when I was seven and went went to the theater. And I remember, I do have a memory at one point of my parents ex- like expressing like, if you're going to go to the movie, you're going to shut up and just watch it. You're not going to say anything. <laughs> like they implored like the importance of like being respectful of other theater goers, which has like stayed with me forever. Um, yep. Like I always try to be like the more respectful uh, theater goer. But we, we, I remember seeing Toys, Robin Williams. Movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah what a weird movie I, I don't I, I also have vague memories of that and i haven't watched it since seeing it in the theater as a child that i almost want to go back and watch it to fill like the gaps and see if my memory truly mirrors up to what occurs in the movie anyways yeah i weird tangent i'm sorry guys i didn't mean to like hear <laughs> no, this. That's all right. a good question <laughs> I, I thought it'd be funny to look at back to the movie um during this dream sequence, uh, if, if I can offer one criticism, because I don't want to sound like I'm just like, this movie is perfect. Uh, there is an over-reliance on slow motion, which I don't appreciate. Uh, it, it feels like the obvious choice to do in a dream sequence, and it kind of log jams the pace a little bit. Uh, so not not a fan of that, but that's that's to my taste. Uh, that, you know, somebody could like that, and that's perfectly fine. I, I, I have no argument against using it. I just, for me, it does like, slow the, the movie down a little bit yeah um anyways again possessed by the fact that alice lee must be enid's sister she goes full detective mode and pulls the reel for don't go into the church or don't go in the church again i'm i'm stupid i could be just fucking it up don't go in the church don't don't go in the church yes don't go in the church anyways she pulls the reel from the archives in order to glean the address of our creepy producer doug smart uh, she rushes over to uh, his house and he greets Enid brandishing a crowbar, which I think is interesting <laughs> because it shows he's being equally harassed by the public uh, because, you know, there's there's so much ill will towards, you know, video nasties and their, uh, you know, uh, their implication in cult- cultural d- d- destruction. We'll say that. I don't know. That, that, that could be stupid. But who knows? Um uh, anyways, uh, inside Enid discovers the office is the same used for the rape scene in Extreme Coda that I had mentioned. So you kind of see he's operating at like the lowest budget. He's using what he's got to make movies. Uh, and I think that's a, a very, very like, just like a fun way. Like, like you know, I shoot stuff in my house, obviously. <laughs> like it's a free location guys uh so i like i I, that's a nice touch uh a nice filmmaking touch i suppose one important thing as well because uh this is gonna become important later but uh he has a poster on the wall of beast man which is a poster that we've seen also at the video store uh and it turns out he's going to be making a sequel to beast man which uh will be important for the final act of the movie um anyways Doug misreads the uh, middle of the night rendezvous uh, because he's a giant uh, creep and he aggressively comes onto Enid. Uh, Enid's like, Frederick abducted her. Then he says, I'll abduct you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Of all the bad lines, I think we can all agree. Terrible line. (laughs) I don't understand what (laughs) circumstance that would work. It's very bad. It's disturbing. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Um, He's not very smooth. 
he's <laughs> no. he's not smooth i mean like I guess he's he's slimy uh so i guess yeah. in that regard he is smooth but not not in the correct proper way um <laughs> anyways uh enid rebuffs slimy dog and manages to knock him over sadly the back of his head meets a film trophy uh, a very fun little touch here, uh, which burrows into the back of his head, uh, killing Doug. Enid thanks Doug for a whisk for the whiskey and heads off, as if refusing to acknowledge the corpse in front of her, which I think is important because I think in her mind, she's not the person who would be capable of committing such an act and therefore can't acknowledge, you know, that that she's done this. I, I think it's good. Oh, I didn't take it that way. I thought no. it suggested that she was capable of it. At least plant, planting that seed of, is she? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, it's a very, again, improbable death. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Mitch, you're you're going you're gonna to offer your opinion because I need it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the question or how you were feeling about it, I think I'm more in line with your thoughts in that she, you know, uh, doesn't see herself as a person capable of this again she sees herself as a protector um so like sort of refuses to acknowledge it um i don't love this scene uh, what okay <laughs> okay the, yeah the the impaled on the movie statue it's just a little too goofy for me um i don't think it really lines up with the tone for this movie um it, it almost took me out for a second where i was like this doesn't feel like it belongs in this movie and the way that they handled the gag i also felt like just was bad uh it didn't look <laughs> good uh for lack of a better word i just think the the shot itself in terms of a completely technical standpoint i think it's flawed i think you can very easily tell that there's something on the other side of his head that is supposed to be coming out of his mouth, but it just doesn't look like it's coming out of his mouth at all. Um, so that also took me out of it a little bit. So don't love that. I like the the situation and where the story is going here in terms of how he responds and you know th that he dies. Like I don't mind the progression. Um, I just thought that the way that he was killed and sort of technically it was a little bit flawed. Um, so yeah, not not a huge fan of this. All right, Debbie Downer, fine. <laughs> uh, Christine, are, are you on Mitch's page, or did you find this to be a successful scene, or you just maybe felt nothing towards a? You know? I mean, I'm a huge Michael Smiley fan, so anytime he shows up in a film, I'm very happy. Um, and I think that it's kind of interesting because he's he's less chipper or something i guess he's on guard you know because someone's come to his house in the middle of the night but it's so weird the death is so weird <laughs> um so i think i'm with mitch on this it doesn't i i this has got to be in her head or or something i mean it's just so ridiculous yeah all right fine guys i'm alone on my island um, <laughs> it's, it's nice over here <laughs> I feel like that's often the case uh, on these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I have a weird taste. I I, I, I see where you're coming from that it, it, it feels dissimilar from the rest of the movie tonally. Um, but for me, it still works. I, like to me, it feels like a like the 
you know the scene where I mentioned that I really liked where she's holding what you perceive to be the menu and as a death certificate. She's like, this is a death sentence. Um, I, I, I find that sets up the tone for this scene, essentially, if that makes sense. There's like other moments as well, but I feel like this this movie is great because it doesn't take itself super seriously and allows itself to have like these weird moments. Uh, but again, I won't begrudge you uh, either of your opinions. I'll just hold it against you forever. <laughs> um, That's fair. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, if, if I did have to like rank a, a least favorite scene, I think this would probably be in the contention because I do like the other scenes more. But we'll get to your final designations of worst scene uh, at the end of our episode, Mitch. Um, but for now... Enid, as if requiring the baptizing waters of her sensor office, barges in to see Anne in Sanderson viewing Beastman. There's like a weird visual standoff of like, what is she doing here? And her refusing to acknowledge. Uh, and as she putters out of the office, we see Sanderson offer someone's losing the plot, which I'd mentioned earlier. A great line which could come off a bit meta and annoying, but works within the context of the movie because, you know, they are film senses after all, and it kind of just works. Enid then ransacks the archives and finds Frederick North's address with relative ease, which again calls into question the like, oh, we need to look into this for like a week before we figure out like what his movies are uh, that I, I actually kind of found fun- a little bit funny. Um, uh, Enid then soldiers out to the uh, the woods uh, because it's established that um, in her meeting with uh, our, our now dead producer that Frederick North is filming a follow-up to Beastman out in the woods by his house. So with the address in hand, she heads out into the woods and it's here she's mistaken by the hair and makeup team uh, playing. Siri just started up and is writing down everything I'm saying. And it's bothering me. <laughs> How do I stop this, guys? Fuck off. I don't know. That's weird. Sorry, anyway, at the same time that that happened, your like the video went choppy on your screen, and I felt like I was in an alternate dimension here for a second. I, I, I feel like I was in an alternate dimension. Like Siri <laughs> popped up and it was like reciting what I was saying, as if like Siri is trolling me here. <sighs> Anyways, um, Enid is mistaken as uh, an actor in the film and is taken in by the hair and makeup team. Uh, Inside the the trailer, she spots a newspaper detailing uh, her trip to the video store to seek out video nasties. Uh, I believe the headline reads, Censors Depraved Video Nasty Habit, uh, which I enjoyed. Um, Anyways, after Enid's been processed, she's rushed over to set by a PA who says, there's no sign of the producer. Poor creepy Doug is no more after all. In the forest, Enid is splashed with fake blood and finally meets Frederick North. And I, I like this. I think this is a good touch. We don't really see him. He's only shown in tight shots and it barely gives us a glimpse of uh, this man. We see like his hands, like a maybe like three quarters of his face uh, on like a canted angle. That's kind of nice. Uh, Enid questions him on his inspirations for don't go into the church. Don't go in the church. Don't go in the church. <laughs> Are these instructions? Or are you correcting yourself? This is this. I'm just in a constant battle with this <laughs> title, which I admitted I liked earlier, but now I'm just like uh, getting a little annoyed with it. Uh, man. All right. Anyways, uh, real life. Uh, it turns out is Frederick's inspiration, uh, and he starts up his eight millimeter camera and deflects Enid's insistence that these aren't true events. 
And at this point, uh, something that I think is really, really cool is happening. Uh, and they're playing with the aspect ratio. I believe it happened before this scene slightly as she kind of like enters the set. It goes from the like 239 anamorphic and then crops in the size a little bit. And then as he starts up the camera, I believe it goes to like a an eight millimeter uh, aspect ratio. Um, I mean, obviously you guys notice the millimeter aspect, but do you, do you start to see it kind of like croach in a little bit? Did you, did, is this something that you guys caught? Because uh, I, I think it is something to easy, easy, easily miss, personally. I think I missed it probably the first time. Um, but, I missed it, but I heard, I mean, it was it's a very important part of this last part of the movie. So it's mentioned a lot in interviews and stuff. So, um, <laughs> But I, I did miss it um, the first time. And so I looked for it, you know, the second time I watched it. Yeah, it's it's a dark movie. So when you initially start to see the the sides kind of like cramp in, it, I don't think it's like entirely noticeable. Mitch, did you did, were you able to catch it or? Uh, no, not initially. Uh, like you said, when it goes into the sort of I don't know what the aspect ratio is, but the sort of more boxy yeah. aspect ratio, it becomes obviously more noticeable. But uh, but yeah, not not initially. Which is it's yeah. a nice touch. I agree. It's a way to kind of like ease us into the really restricted eight millimeter uh vantage point that we're given for i believe it's the, the, we're in this for the rest of the movie i believe even like her quote-unquote dream sequence i believe is done in this aspect ratio am i, am I right or wrong I, I, now i don't, I don't, I don't even know. remember yeah my memory has a gap guys i'm gonna, <laughs> oh, fill, no. it. <laughs> I'm gonna fill it with it stays the same guys just for the sake of okay. finishing our episode <laughs> um anyways frederick goads i say anyways that that's a bad segue uh or like not a segue but like <laughs> bringing, bringing me back into the synopsis it's like anyways um i'm just gonna i'm gonna be so like uh self-deprecating <laughs> this episode uh and going forward mitch so you have that to look forward to okay perfect <laughs> awesome yeah Anyways, Frederick goes Enid into uh, improvising uh, for her role and say, he basically says that, I'll say basically a lot, anyways. Yes, let's, let's do it. So. <laughs> analyzing everything that you're saying. Take control of your story, he says. I'm going to take control of this story. Um, Enid begins to plead for her sister. Uh, Frederick takes this as he as if she's playing to the camera, which is again just a, like a great moment um he then follows her as she enters the cottage uh or cabin where she's greeted by the beast man one of uh north's characters uh he's a hulk of a man oh, andre the giant in stature i suppose and he hands her an axe uh and then grabs a hold of alice lee's character who's on the other side of the cabin and the beast man implores uh her to uh uh what what is she, what is she, what is he i don't remember what he says but he's basically saying like come like dispatch uh you know this this character uh so she stalks towards the beast man and as well as alice lee with her axe in hand uh and then he cries out this isn't in the script as enid brings down her axe uh dispatching the poor beast man uh, his head kicks back, crashing through an old television uh, slash set dressing, I suppose. Uh, and then from within the beast man's chest wound, Enid sees some creature lurking, which utters, I am horror. Uh, Enid brings her axe down, destroying this perceived creature as uh, the rest of the crew is disgusted by the events. I think the, the boom, the boom op vomits. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great, guys. 
Um, uh, Frederick North rushes into the cabin. Alice flees the scene. Uh, and Enid is left blaming the director. It's all your fault as she decapitates Frederick North. And like, this is probably the, the first and only time we will see him uh, clearly uh, in this film. All right, Mitch, a lot has happened here. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like the decapitation is, is also wildly different from the tone of the rest of the movie. Uh, so I, I, I feel like there's a lot to discuss here. Sure. Give, me, give, me, give me what you're thinking. <laughs> Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the the end of the movie, the last act of 20 minutes or so, is definitely where I think the movie falls off a little bit for me. Uh, it's tough because there's the element of questioning what is reality and what is not reality, uh, which I think is interesting to a point, but then if sort of it's all in her head or the majority of it's in her head, it's like, okay, well, then how interesting is it? really and in, in my mind not that interesting and if only some of it is and it's supposed to be reality then it's tough for me because like i don't really buy what's going on here uh, like it starts with her showing up and they're like oh you're an actress i'm not gonna ask you your name or anything or what you're doing here just put makeup on you and then the director doesn't know who she is but he just throws her in there and you know they made a point of showing how low budget these movies are on a low-budget film, Stefan, as you and I can attest to, we know who's going to be on the set. We know who the actors are. And I don't know that that's necessarily the point. And it's a little bit nitpicky on my end just to be like, I don't buy that someone's going to show up there and everyone's just going to be like, we don't know who you are, but I guess you're an actress, right? Uh, you're in the movie. Go act. Um, so that stuff, I'm just kind of like, eh. like it. Again, I, I realize that it's nitpicky, but I just don't really care it's, it doesn't work for me it feels um, like an eated note yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, and then the the sort of question of reality comes in again when it's like okay she's she's got the axe in her hand and the the beast man or whatever he's called it's like this isn't in the script which in my mind tells me okay this is actually happening because if if it's in her mind he doesn't say that line like that right. doesn't happen if we're seeing it from her warp perspective where this isn't really going on um which then just leads me to be less interested because i then it's less believable for me just that right. all of the sequence of events are occurring uh so it it doesn't work and yes the decapitation is ridiculous <laughs> like it just looks silly uh so yeah so this is definitely where the movie loses me the most Okay. Um, Christine, I'm curious because I, I know that you overall enjoy this movie, but I don't know how you feel about specific sections of it. Is, are, are you more in line with Mitch or did you enjoy this uh, as the kind of like, you know, we're, we're almost at the final moments of the, the movie here. Uh, how are you feeling about this as its direction? Um, I liked it actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> I liked it. I mean, it is, it is insane to think that she yeah. would be, you know, just put into this movie. But I really like it when the beast man says this is not in the script because he becomes human at that moment. And right. um, that's what she destroys. And I guess for a lot of this movie, you don't know what's reality and what's fantasy. But I felt like this was definitely reality. And that's where the horror comes that she's yeah. like, you know, killing these, killing these actors in such a brutal way 
I agree. I, I it's just I, everything about this movie is 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 my jam. So I I don't know what else I can say to implore people to watch it. But uh, let's get to the the final final moments here. Um, Enid rushes into the forest after Alice, practically claiming to be her sister, which is a like a freaking horrifying like image. Like you're on set, somebody murders your your co-star, then chases after you into the forest, saying, "I'm your sister." <laughs> like to me, that's like, it's like nightmare fuel. Um, but anyways, uh, but anyways, Alice is reasonably frightened. Um, uh, she's she she exclaims, I have a sister and it's not you. Uh, uh, they eventually collapse into the, the the muck of the forest. Enid keeps repeating, you have to be her. Please be her. It's clear that, you know, uh, via um, dialogue earlier on with her parents, she's Enid has been constantly trying to drum up possibilities of what has happened to her sister that uh is is a great interesting way to you know allude to how she's how she's dealt with the loss of her sister um and it also stays true to her character here in the final moments of the movie that i find you know like a a lot of horror movies at, at times can can feel like they violate the rules that you've established for the character and i think that's not something you can level at this movie in any way i think everybody acts accordingly even if it's in like a bananas reality that, you know, even if, even if Mitch, you're like, uh, this like isn't working for me. The characters all still work though. Um, which I think again, just to say assured direction in this film. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, from this moment, uh, Alice very reasonably runs off, uh, into the forest away from Enid. Enid's kind of, sobbing into the the gross mud uh and she discovers a remote in her hand um she then hits play and our image glitches out and we find an ethereal angelic alice who emerges from some dense heavenly fog uh this new version of alice seems to tell enid everything she wants to hear suggesting they should go home giddy they run through the forest and drive back to their parents as a news broadcast claims crime has been eradicated thanks to the end of the video nasties again so funny and great uh this is all done uh as i said earlier uh it feels like there's like a bit of like john waters in this or or almost like blue velvet era uh david lynch there's like the the pristine i feel like i said idyllic too many times but it does feel like an idyllic suburb like uh the grass is super green. The white picket fences are super white. Uh, the people are super white. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a rainbow arcing over the house when she arrives at uh, uh, her parents slash their parents, I guess, in this context. Uh, home. The, uh, the parents are waiting out front, uh, like expectant. It's, it's Everything is perfect. Uh, Enid shepherds her sister to, uh, you know, her parents and they like readily accept that this is alice which again uh they would never do because they've already admitted that they believe uh their their daughter to be dead and during the sequence our video feed glitches out and we're treated to like the horrific truth behind this and everyone's like twisted face like just like absolutely aghast i i really like this this is very affecting for me i like this i think it's great um not to again try to like 
conflate two films, but in St. Maud, uh, not to ruin a movie we're not covering, but she's like, she's feel like she's like rapturing at the end of the film, but she's actually on fire. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's fucking great. Uh, I love when uh, stuff like that happens in films. Uh, but guys, that censor. Mitch, what are your thoughts on these final, final moments? Uh, did you at least appreciate the editing towards the end? Or is that still just like, like you're, you're it doesn't do anything for you anymore because you're already out. Uh, so I appreciated the final moments and sort of the, I definitely laughed at the crime has been eradicated uh, stuff on the radio and, and appreciated the switch from sort of her version of reality to the horror of what's actually happening in that situation. So I did like the very final moments of the movie there. Yeah. Uh, Christina, similar question. Uh, is, is this a satisfying end to this film for you as a viewer? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I agree with you on the David Lynch part, and, but I also I was sort of getting Terry Gilliam vibes. Yeah, that's um, fair. Especially yeah. like at the end of Time Bandits. Um, I mean, it's, it's different, but you have the horror within the family system. Um, and yeah, the, the picture that's like identical to the book she had seen later with the rainbow over the house. Um, and then that glitchy stuff did remind me of St. Maud too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was, I was into it. Yeah. Uh, huge fan. Um, now guys, it's Friday night and our viewers are looking for something to check out. It, it's not actually Friday night guys. It's Tuesday for us. <laughs> but imagine it's Friday night uh, or just like a weekend night and, and people are looking for something to check out. Would censor be something you would send across the table for them i think no generally speaking um i think that the majority of you know sort of mass audience would probably reject this movie um because it it is i'd say a slower paced even though it's not a long movie it definitely doesn't move super quickly uh, it doesn't it's not interested like i said in your traditional scares so like a you know, someone who likes scary movies, I don't know that they for sure would like this. I think this is uh, a specific taste. And, you know, I obviously I know you like it, Stefan. Um, but for most people I know, if they asked me, I'd probably be like, probably you're not going to enjoy it. I don't think. Um, so I think it's a specific taste, which is why I would say no, I wouldn't recommend this um, to most people for a Saturday night watch. I would agree. Uh, I, I think it is, it, if, I don't know how to put this, but I mean, there's so many elements um, to it that are enjoyable if you're into this sort of thing. Right. Um, like we haven't mentioned the Jalo like lighting and which is really a whole lot of fun. But so if that's the kind of stuff you're going to pick up on and enjoy, then I think so. And, but you know, not everybody is like that. So, and it is, it is, arty and it is slow <laughs> so i don't think most people would like it but the people who would like it are my kind of people yeah i'd agree with that sentiment uh i, I would definitely recommend it because i i just want people to see it in general i don't even care if you don't like it just like rent it anyway so they get money <laughs> also I would say, because uh, I have the physical release of this that Vinegar Syndrome put out, and they started a label that 
selects modern titles that are shot on film uh and it's a beautiful release and i would highly recommend uh to like not even just like rent it just buy it sight unseen you know spend the money watch it then if you don't like it don't tell me you don't like it because i don't want to hear it you know so uh, that's that's where i'm at good advice yeah. uh but i think we are moving on to our final element the purgatories uh mitch i'm excited to hear what is working and what is not working but i really like this movie so let's start with the positive um we're gonna give uh, a award for best performance first sure um i'm not sure how to pronounce her name uh the main the lead uh, it, so it's, it's it phonetically it would be like nim but it's neve because she's irish uh okay. and i believe her last name is all is just pronounced phonetically so it's algar okay so her is uh... <laughs> <laughs> the long-winded, a long-winded response to only get shafted rude <laughs> Uh, she's great in the movie. Uh, does uh, a wonderful job as the the lead character, who, like you said, is this um, has these interesting ideals and and notions that she's to protect the people from these horrible video nasties, and and you believe every moment of it. And even when she's sort of devolving into sort of madness or these altered reality where we are unsure what's going on she does a great job in all the scenes so i think that it's carried this movie's carried by her she's in i think every scene pretty much there's really nobody else that we're exploring uh, in the movie so i think it'd be a disservice to give this to somebody else in the movie a, a very well-reasoned reasonable response she's actually cast in i, I haven't watched it so i don't know if it's good or not but i and, and this could also be a mischaracterization because i haven't watched it but i believe it's a sci-fi show that really scott's doing called raised by wolves yeah oh. she's, she's in that so like yeah. it's, it's good to see her you know getting more work because she is yeah. uh super talented i completely agree i think her performance is great um yeah an awesome selection the only selection question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the only person you can really in the movie. Oh man, I really shot myself in the foot, I guess, with uh, our standard awards for this episode. Um, but how about least like least favorite performance? Because like I don't think anybody's bad in this movie. No, and I don't have an answer because That's nobody's fine, yeah. bad, and nobody else is really given that much to do. Um, so like I there's really nobody that I feel like I can pick for the least it's like, it's like fucking compliment and a burn. <laughs> Everybody's good, but they're good so nothing. The focus of this movie that you know, there's people that maybe have two scenes in it, but they're not, you know, driving the plot of the movie all that much or you know, given a ton to do just you know, we're not exploring their characters really in any way. Right. Uh, and and that's fine you don't have to it's a movie about her um but yeah it just doesn't lend itself to it's, it's a bit of a cop-out but i really don't have anyone to label as the worst performance in the movie i could pick a name from the list but i honestly wouldn't even know who they were that's fine. <laughs> you know like this is this is a first you've, you've always picked like a performance that doesn't work for you yeah. right uh, I think this is a fair, reasonable, like everybody does their job in this film. Like even like the guy who's like behind this, like the, 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 the desk at the video, the the front desk at the video store yes. does a great job. You know, like the smallest parts are, are awarded to the, to people who are talented and are doing what they can with what they have. 
Uh, and yeah, there's nothing that like, if I set aside my, like my, my love for this film into a little box, the box is set aside and I'm looking at the movie like as objectively as possible. I honestly can't find a performance that I'm like, yeah, that sucks. Like, yeah. yeah. So fair and reasonable. Well, let's get to a, uh, a category where I think you can at least pick something. So we'll go with, with favorite scene first, because again, the movie deserves the love first. Yeah. Uh, my favorite scene in the movie, I went with the viewing of, I can't remember the name of the film specifically, but she's watching the movie that is reminiscent of her memories. Uh, the right. one that sort of sparks the, that's almost like the inciting incident is what we talked about is what carries on to the rest of the movie. Don't go in the church. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I really like it just because, again, it does have that element of mystery where you're like, okay, is there something more sinister going on in terms of, you know, the person making this movie? Do they know something? Is this, um, you know, her family member or is it her just imagining things? So I do like that element of mystery that is here. And I think it's just an, an unsettling scene to watch as well. And we mentioned the you know, washing over of the projector and the direction being assured. I just think it works on a number of different levels and and moves the movie into the next act really successfully. Yeah. Even if, even if you don't like this movie, I think you can appreciate the setup of a film censor who has uh, a, a memory deficit. It's probably a poor way to, to say it. But like she can't remember what happened to her sister in the woods. And this is a movie that, that conjures up the so many similarities to her her uh this like loose memory yeah uh, that's that's a good setup like straight up uh no notes on that that's a great conceit for a film um so yeah, at the very least you can appreciate it for that uh with the good out of the way let's end on a negative note here what's your least favorite <laughs> scene <laughs> um so you might think it's something from the very end of the movie but i actually picked the uh Michael Smiley death scene. Mm -hmm. Unsurprising. Uh, just because of, again, it's, it's sort of the first time in the movie where I'm feel like I'm taken out of the movie where the tone is a little bit too goofy. Um, and I just, again, and technically speaking, it's a little bit wonky. Um, so that's, that's sort of the point in the movie where things started to be like, eh, okay, don't didn't love this. And it doesn't go uphill from there we'll say um but yeah, yeah. So this is the sort of defining moment where i think not where i checked out but where i just sort of started feeling not quite as into it yeah i have to be honest like i i want to sound like i'm just like this movie is amazing and it has no problems i again i i cited the slow motion earlier as like a bit of right. a like a south choice that does it doesn't work for me structurally it's weird to go from her like lifting an address from the archives to go to the producer's place then going back to the archives and then grabbing the address of the director like it, it, it structurally it just feels like you're zigzagging back and forth uh I, be I believe i'm like remembering the events correctly and that like that's the the structure of the story it just feels like frederick north is your white whale why aren't you going for that piece of information ahead of you know this gross producer's address which isn't entirely the uh, the Im the important person you're seeking out. You know, go go for the director, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Christina, do you feel that way, or or am I just like a, a well, big old dummy? 
something that um, I, th- those two things can both be true. But um, <laughs> uh, to defend the Michael Smiley death and also the decapitation, this is very generous. But what if those are nods to the low budget, you know, exploitation films that yeah. she's constantly watching? A very fair and reasonable. Absolutely. Mitch is, is nodding. He approves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it can definitely be read that way. And I think more specifically with the Michael Smiley one. And I mean, I guess, you know, it, you could consider this part of it as well. But it, I don't want to fixate on it. But just the shot of the side where it's clearly oh, not stop there. it, man. <laughs> it's just bad. <laughs> just cut off the bottom of a prop and put it in his mouth. It couldn't possibly be that hard, which which sort of almost makes me think it is intentional. Yeah. Uh, but I still don't like <laughs> it's just, know, be, just for my taste i'd be curious if it is intentional to like look a little bit bad yeah it, it's um, certainly possible it wouldn't surprise me uh, but it right. did take me out of it fair um all right well that's the end of the purgatories christina are you uh uh in line do, do you feel similarly with mitch uh i i know like obviously the actor award should probably go to uh neve algar uh, but what about the the scenes? Do, are you in agreement on best and worst there, or, or, or least favorite? I suppose not worst. I guess. I think I'm with Mitch on the favorite scene, and I remember when I was watching it, I'm like, okay, here we go. Um, so <laughs> I was definitely in at that point. And in terms of least favorite scene, I'm not really sure. I'm trying to think of anything that's like kind of weak. I think the first guy that she's working with is not that engaging. The lackadaisical guy. I love uh, that guy. He's such yeah. a rat. <laughs> He's important, but all of yeah. these people are just to tell us more about her. Right. And that's what's kind of cool about this movie is they only get, like Mitch said, like one or two scenes, but they they nail it. You know, yeah. you know that guy has a crush on her, you know, and you know, you know about Anne and all these other characters. So but um yeah no i liked cool. it all awesome well guys i think this is the end of our of our season three episode we're a little bit longer than normal or our new normal new new normal, normal. can't even talk anymore I'm, I'm the point is i'm done uh <laughs> i would like to implore everybody to go check out uh christina's podcast the world of horror podcast uh it is gets my full endorsement wonderful people talking about wonderful things uh wow. and wonderful opinions um, but you I, forgot to mention, Stefan, that you were a guest on the podcast. You guys did a, a couple Canadian uh, episodes. Yes, sir. You can listen to uh, me ramble on. They had to split it up because I talk too much. <laughs> As you can tell by anybody who listens to this, I just rattle on. Well, uh, we also had four people on the podcast, so that's, that was a lot of opinions expressed. <laughs> it's it's true. Uh, we talked about Siege, and we talked about... I'm having a mind fart. I, I remember the Any- movie... Anything for Jackson. Anything for Jackson. Thank you. Uh, so we did a, what I would consider to be like a classic underseen Canadian film and a modern Canadian film. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, definitely listen to it. Uh, I have nothing probably smart to say as usual. Uh, <laughs> oh, <Stephen>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, okay. Why don't we end this now? How does that sound? Okay.
Okay, cool. Well, this is the end of the episode. Let's all say goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>